We're in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. I still have a, a cold. Um, my doctor said I'm not contagious, but I wouldn't be near me if I were you, so be very careful. Well, it's fitting we're ending the parables. This is the last parable in the book of Luke. That, this was my assignment from uh, Pastor Rob to go through the parables in the book of Luke. This is the last parable. It's fitting that we should end the last parable with this uh, wonderful treatise. As you have known, the parables all had to do with the Lord Jesus Christ illustrating truth from the Word of God. There are several reasons for that, that the disciples might know and that those who had rejected the Word of God might not know uh, His truth. Those who were hostile, for example, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And though they could pick up parts of the parable, they did not have spiritual insight into the parables, therefore they could not determine them. But this last parable has to do with the end times. Most of the way through the book of Luke, I think you've seen that the parables had uh, mostly to do with the nation of Israel as an independent nation. It had to do with them as being God's chosen people, and primarily it had, with the, had to do with them making sure that they were prepared to enter the kingdom of God, which was the long-awaited promise from Messiah that the kingdom would come. Here at this very last parable in Luke chapter 21 and verse 29, we read this. And he spoke unto them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all trees. Now if you compare the synoptic gospels with that, Matthew ends with, Behold the parable of the fig tree. Uh, but here Luke adds in an all tree. So the Lord Jesus specifically talked about a fig tree, but included all trees round about them. He said, Behold the parable of, uh, Behold the fig tree and all trees. When they, uh, when they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is near and at hand. So when you see a fig tree, when you see a tree start to blossom, you and I enjoy that so much, of course, here in um, the northeastern United States. Uh, we go through this cold, difficult winter, and uh, you think it's over because it's March and nothing's happening yet. You think it's over because it's April and nothing's happening yet. And then finally, when you get toward the end of April, you, the trees start to bud. But we know something's coming. Spring and summer is on the way. And that's what the Lord Jesus is talking about. However, he's not referencing something wonderful coming. He's referencing something horrible coming. And again, this is specifically, uniquely and specifically for the nation of Israel. The Gentiles will be involved in this for sure, but it's pointed toward Israel. And I'll, we'll see that in a moment. When they now shoot forth, see and know that you're... Uh, you yourselves that summer is near, now verse 31. So also when ye, so also ye, when you see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is near at hand. What things, what things is he talking about? Well, what determines the interpretation of a passage? What determines the interpretation of any passage? The context. The context always determines the interpretation. You always have to go to the context to know what you're talking about. If you don't look at the context, you'll always get it wrong. You'll always get it wrong. Because in context, God wrote something. What things when you see these things? Well, to know that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 21. And really, we'll start right in verse 5. 
Now we'll go to Matthew in just a moment to see this uh, just a bit more clearly as Matthew describes it. But the Lord Jesus has been up on the Temple Mount. This is the last day that he's teaching. He will now, uh, from this point, go into the garden, from the garden be arrested. But when we're talking now, he's up on the Temple Mount in verse 5. And as some spoke of the temple, of Matthew 21, and some spoke of the temple, how it was uh, adored with beautiful stones and the gifts, he said, as for these things which ye behold, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So see this beautiful temple? It's going to be totally destroyed. Totally destroyed. Uh, and we know that came to pass in 70 AD by General Titus when he entered the city and he destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem. But it's further than that. He's talking about 70 AD, just a few years uh, after his death, really. But now we're talking about the time period in which uh, the kingdom would be ushered in. So he, he goes from there and enters in, if you please, in verse 7. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the age? Or when shall these things come to pass? I read Matthew in there, not recognizing it myself. But uh, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Uh, and when shall these things come to pass? So uh, they ask him two questions. When shall these things be, the temple destroyed? And he completely ignores that, and he enters right into the sign of his coming. He enters right into the sign of his coming. And notice, uh, picking it up, please, in verse 8. And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the time draweth near, go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not at once. Then he said unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes, earthquakes shall be in different places, and famines and pestilences and fearful signs, uh, sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. So he lets them know that there's going to be a series of events that will take place prior to his second coming. Again, the temple is completely ignored. The destruction of the temple by General Titus is ignored. He, he leaps right into the signs of his coming. But he also throws an addendum in there, and this is prior to these wars and rumors of wars and all that business coming. He says in verse 12 of chapter 21, But before these things they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. So he warns his disciples, before these things happen, you will be persecuted. You will be brought before kings. You will be essentially killed, for my name's sake, before these, this great, what we know to be the great tribulation happens. Before that, you will be persecuted. Then he makes a statement. I'd like to ask you a question about this. In verse 14, he says, settle it. Settle it. What is, does anyone have other translations? What does your translation say? Chapter 14, I mean 21-14. What does the New King James say? Settle it. Any other translations that say anything different? You know what that means? 
settle it in your thinking. Get your heart ready for this. Get your mind ready for this. Now, what's he talking about specifically? Well, he says, settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. So he lets them know, settle it in your heart that you're going to end up before the kings, and don't get all upset about what you're going to say. Now, I am afraid, and, and I heard this one time, and it just drove me up the wall, through it and down the other side, really. You don't have to know anything about the Bible. God will give you the words to say. I can't think of a more stupid thing for a person to say. Like all of a sudden, you're going to come up with magic biblical words. That is so ridiculous, it's unbelievable. How can you know what to answer someone when you know the Word of God? It's not one of these things where you can say, well, I don't know, I'm not sure. I think in the Bible it says somewhere this. No, no. You have to know what God's Word says. And then you won't be worried, right? I know what God says about this. I'm not concerned. When they ask me questions, I don't have anything to hide. I've been before several panels of men and had to answer questions. And you know what? I wasn't afraid. I know what God's Word says. No, I was intimidated by them, to be sure, but not before the Lord. I know what God says about this. And here's what God says, and you just give the answer. That's the only thing you can do. But let me add this to it. I'm not trying to add to the Scriptures, but since we know that the prophets were persecuted, since we know the apostles are persecuted, since we know believers have been persecuted, you better start settling in your heart that we might go come against that too. Settle it. Get it straightened out. When Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation, settle it. It's going to happen. There's going to be problems. When Jesus said, you'll have the same problems the world has, settle it. It's going to happen. Some Christians, when problems come into their life, you'd think they were some kind of martyr. You're not. The whole world has these problems, and even beyond that, worse things, far worse things. I remember going to Children's Hospital with one of our grandchildren who suffered a, a birth injury, and we went to Children's Hospital, and I thought, well, this is one of the most horrible things that a person can go through, a child with a birth injury, until we got into Children's Hospital in Boston. Some people in the world have it far worse than we could even think about. Than we could even think about. Horrible, horrible things. Settle it, folks, that in this world there's going to be problems. In this world there's going to be persecution. In this world these things are going to happen. Settle it. Settle it in your heart. No, okay, it's coming. It may come upon me in my lifetime. It may not, but no matter whether it does or it does not, my God's still sovereign and my God's still in charge. Settle it in your heart, therefore. Then he said, for, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which your uh, adversary shall not be able to contradict nor withstand. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinfolks and friends, and some of you they shall cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated for all men for my name's sake. But they shall not a hair on your head perish. Now, what does that mean? If you're going to be put to death, your hair soon perishes. Some of us, it's perishing ahead of time for sure. But recognize that uh, he, he switches from, you know, all this will happen to you, and you could even be put to death, but God has given you spiritual safety. God has given you uh, 
a, 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 a soul of safety. Notice he says in verse uh, 19, in your patience possess ye your souls. In other words, your soul shall be safe even unto death. Don't be concerned about it. I'm going to carry you right through to the end. No matter what comes into your life, I'm going to carry you. And then he says in verse 20, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed about with the enemies, then know that its desolation is near. Let them who are in the Judea flee. Now he goes back again to this time of trouble, the time called Jacob's trouble. This isn't 70 AD here. This is the total destruction of the nation itself by foreign armies. And he'll describe who those armies are in just a moment. But notice, he says, let those who are in Judea flee in the mountains, and let the, who, those who are in the midst depart, and let them not that are in the countries enter into it. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written might be fulfilled. Now, what are those things written? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, for example, Zechariah, Zephaniah. When the armies of the world come against Judah, when they come against Jerusalem, and they encompass Jerusalem, and they're going to destroy it in what we know to be the great battle of Armageddon. We know this battle's round about Jerusalem. It's very interesting, but we won't have time to look at that. But notice the context now. But woe to them that with child, and to them that are nurse children in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive, unto all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, all carry this account, and Luke is the only one that talks about the times of the Gentiles. It's kind of interesting. Luke is the only one that talks about the time of the Gentiles. Now, that shouldn't be surprising to us, because Luke was a writer to the Gentiles, was he not? Acts chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. He's writing to a Gentile governor, which apparently was a Roman governor, who financed his writings, Theophilus. So as we look at this, he talks about the times of the Gentiles. Now let me ask you a question, and I'm sure you're well aware of this, but what is this age or time of the Gentiles? What is it? When did it start, and when will it end? And I want us to look at that together because it's important for our context to recognize. When did the times of the Gentiles start? Well, let's quickly run through the Bible just for a moment to take a look at this. Head with me to Daniel chapter 2 for a moment. <coughs> it was always God's will. It was always God's will that the nation of Israel should be the mightiest nation in the world. Leader of the entire world, that all the nations of the world might look to the nation of Israel as their leader, as their hope, as their example, as their shining star, and as the, the one they are to mimic. They were always to look to Israel and the, uh, the God of Israel. They were to be examples to all the nations, not only their own people, but all the nations of the world, all the Gentiles would look at them. But because of their sin and disobedience to God, God began to chasten them. He began to chasten them. And you know the story. We've been through the story in the Kings and the Chronicles, how God was chastening uh, the nation of Israel. And finally, um, it's not correct biblically, but he gave up on them. 
That's not correct, but you understand what I mean. It's enough. It's time to shut you down. So as a nation, he took the scepter of righteousness that they were to represent the king. He took the scepter of righteousness out of their hands, and he placed it into the hands of the Gentiles. And it started with King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, was King Nebuchadnezzar the mightiest king in the world? Yes. No question about it. Was he the only king in the world? No. There was uh, Pharaoh Necho. Uh, there were uh, many other. Um, prior to him, of course, was uh, the Assyrian king, Sennacherib. There were mighty nations in the world, but God chose to allow Babylon to be the one to come in and capture the nation of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar did this in two different waves. On the second wave, he, he totally destroyed the entire nation. He took away captives, all the wonderful young men of, of, the, of the nation. He only left the very old, the very weak, and the very sick in Jerusalem. Everyone else was taken captive. So you and I would have stayed here. Yes. No, maybe you'd go, but... Uh, um, the, every, he took everyone else away. And you know, of course, the book of Daniel, and I won't take time to look at the, all the wise men. He began teaching them the ways of the Babylonians, of the Chaldeans, so that he could, in fact, um, train them and use them and bribe them to be his subjects. And the rest of the people he dispersed throughout the known world. Well, Daniel... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and that dream, of course, Pastor Rob mentioned the other morning. He doesn't know. He can't remember what the dream was. All he knows, it, it was horrific. It was terrible. And none of his wise men can answer the dream at all. He, there's no hope. But Daniel can. Why? Because God gives him the revelation of it all. There's a God in heaven who interprets dreams, Daniel says. So picking it up in Daniel now, Daniel chapter... A two. Look at verse 36. We'll cut right to the, the quick here in, in 36. This is the dream. Remember he told he, the, the image had a, 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 a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, a belly of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And you can hear Nebuchadnezzar, can't you? Yeah, that's it. Now I remember. I remember exactly. That's exactly it. But what does this mean? So Daniel told him what the dream was, and now he says, here's the interpretation. And we will tell its interpretation before the king. Thou, O king, are a king of kings. Well, that sounds really impressive. You are the greatest king there is. Rah, rah, you know, in all this business. And you can just picture Nebuchadnezzar in the middle of this. Uh, that's right. I'm the man. Until Daniel adds... For the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom and power and strength and glory. It's not you. It has nothing to do with you, sir. It's the God of heaven that's done this. And wherever the children of men dwell, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. For thou art the head of gold. This is where God began the times of the Gentiles the times of the Gentile nations, when the Gentile nations now would rule the known world. And they'll rule the known world for another 4,000 years till the time we live in. The Gentile nations rule the world. 
the United States of America is the greatest nation in the world. There's, no, there's just no question about it. There's no question about it. But it's only because God has given us that power. And he told Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to take it away from you. I'll take it away from the Medes and Persians. I'll take it away from the Grecians. I'll take it away from the Romans. And if, if uh, the writer Daniel continued on, he'd say, I'm going to take it away from the United States of America. He rules the God rules the nations of the world, but he gave over the scepter of rule to the Gentile people. And that scepter of rule will remain until Antichrist. It will end with the Antichrist. Now, why will it end with Antichrist? Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself will come back and take the rule back. He'll come back and break the yoke, break the bondage when Antichrist comes. The Gentiles, the rule of the Gentiles has always been from Nebuchadnezzar right down through the Great Tribulation period. It ends with the ruling powers of the Great Tribulation period. When God said he'll gather all the nations against Israel and they'll all be destroyed in the land of Israel. Some in Armageddon, some down in Basra, some up in Jerusalem. If you compare all the, the scriptures on that, you'll see it's a total slaughter of, of the nations of the world that come against Jerusalem. This is the times of the Gentiles. We live in the times of the Gentiles. It's kind of interesting, do we not? We live in the times of the Gentiles, and it's interesting. Turn back with me, please. Uh, the church is part of this. The church is part of this. Head with me to Romans chapter 11. You all know this passage very well. But in Romans chapter 11, <coughs> Paul, of course, writing to the church at Rome, warning them uh, that they stand before God, but their stand is precarious. They need to be careful that, uh, that they are uh, producing the fruit they should because God removed the natural branches and he engrafted the wild branches, which is the Gentile church. But God has a plan. One day he's going to re-graft in or replace into the, the vine the natural branches. And when would that be? Well, when Messiah is going to return to rule and reign. And we see that in, Matt, in Romans chapter 11. He said, for I would not have, in verse 25, for I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, Lest this mystery should be, uh, let me read that again. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part is happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. God has a plan for the Gentiles, which includes the Gentile church that we're part of to this very day. Now, blindness in part, there are still some Jews that are being saved, and we're thankful for that. They are Jewish brethren. They're born again. Some of them, unfortunately, think of themselves a little more highly than they ought to think, but they're, they're members of the church. They fail to read Ephesians, which says we're all one. You know, there's neither Jew. Um, I, I've been with several of these groups on a, different occasions in Israel, and uh, they... they uh, called Messianic Christians. So that's funny. All I know is one kind of Christian, and that's someone that's born again. Oh, no, we're Jews. 
we're kosher Christians. So I, I don't know what that is either. All I know is we're one in Christ. But some people get excited. Some are just like us, and we're very thankful for that. But we're one in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going to happen? Well, the fullness of the Gentiles. God is adding to the Gentile church. He's going to add to the, some Jews to it along the way for sure. But God is building his church. And as he builds his church till the conclusion of the fullness of the Gentiles, when will that be? Well, you and I know it to be the great translation of the saints. When the Gentile church and those who are Jews, the dead in Christ, shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the air. That ends what we know to be the Gentile church. It does not end the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles continues on through the Great Tribulation period until Messiah comes back. And by the way, we come back with him. When Messiah comes back, he comes back to destroy the Gentile nations. And that's when he sets up his millennial kingdom. Now, having said all that, I want us to, to just follow this just for a minute, just a little bit further. Head with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. What was the purpose of Messiah? Well, one of his purposes in Luke chapter 2, <coughs> and you know this certainly very well. Pastor Rob has talked about this on a number of occasions. In Luke 2, and look at verse 32. <coughs> this is uh, Simeon telling uh, Mary about Messiah. And he says that Messiah, in verse 32, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So he was a light to lighten the Gentiles. That was the purpose of Christ's coming. Not only to his nation, his people, his Jewish people, but also to cast a light to the Gentile nations. That was his purpose. And he did that by his 12 apostles, his disciples and his disciples, who went out not only to the, they, were, they stuck with the Jew first, of course, in Jerusalem, and then he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world, the Gentile nations. And so the, uh, the disciples went out through the known world spreading the light of Christ. Now, look with me, please, at Luke chapter 18. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Isn't that correct? But let me add this too, please. The Gentiles didn't receive him either. Some Jews believed on him, of course. He had many followers. Out of the tens of, of thousands he spoke to, we only have a record of like 160. <laughs> uh, there could have been more other places, but in downtown Jerusalem, that's all there was among them that really cared about Messiah. But the Gentiles also rejected him. We're in Luke chapter 18. Look at verse 31, please. Luke 18. <clears throat> in verse 31. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully treated, and spit upon. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, 
and the third day he shall rise again. Who did that? The Gentiles. The Jews called for his death, for sure, but the Gentiles were part of his death. He was rejected by the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Why? Because it was prophesied of him by the prophets. He's going to Jerusalem, and he'll be put to death. So during the times of the Gentiles, we have Nebuchadnezzar taking over the Gentile reign, and it filtered all the way down through the Lord Jesus Christ to the New Testament church, and from the New Testament church, we will be taken out of the way. We will be raptured. We'll be translated. When will that happen? Well, let's look at a couple things quickly. Head back with me, please, to the book of Matthew for a moment. The book of Matthew. Now, we've seen the times of the Gentile, Matthew chapter 24. <coughs> Remember, Jesus said, When you shall see all these things come to pass, know that the time is near. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, many Christians take this as our present-day times. And I, and, I, and I lovingly and kindly want you to know that just because there's a lot of earthquakes does not mean we're near the rapture, right? There could be more earthquakes and more severe earthquakes, or all the earthquakes could stop. That doesn't mean the rapture's gonna happen, right? Not, the signs that we now see, the things that we now see, do not determine when the great tribulation will take place. They do not determine that at all. And we like, oh, there's more earthquakes than ever. Isn't this great? There may be er more earthquakes than ever since they've been keeping records, we know. But long before there were records, there were earthquakes. So we do not know that. Well, nation will rise against nation. Um, that's been going on for quite a while. I don't know if you know that. You know. Well... What about earthquakes and pestilences? There's always been pestilences. There's always been earthquakes. All these things are just, a, and I'm so glad that uh, we read that th this afternoon uh, in Romans. That's part of an earth that's groaning. When God pushed up the, 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 uh, the ocean floors and made what we know to be the great mountains of the earth, and when he pushed down the seas and made the great uh, gulfs that uh, contain the seawaters today from the noetic flood, the earth was put on great pressure, was cursed, and is groaning. That's why the, the bands are sliding over one another. Why? There's great pressure in the world. Why? Because God, God placed it upon earth. The earth is groaning until Messiah comes back and he's going to straighten it all out. But that does not mean that we're in or close to the Great Tribulation period. We say, well, what about Israel? In May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation again. What about that? That does not mean this is the last regathering. It could be, but it does not mean it's the last regathering. Would it shake your faith in God if uh, 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 Iran attacked and drove Israel into the sea? Would it shake your faith in God? It shouldn't. Why? Because God can regather them again, can he? He can do that. 
So because we look around us and we say, well, things are getting really bad, you know, Christians are being persecuted. I have a book for you to read, please. Take down the name of this book if you want to read something interesting. It's called First and Second Peter. If you think we're going through troubles, ask Peter. Ask Paul. So there's nothing new under the sun, isn't that right? And listen, I want the Lord to return as much as you do. But don't grab on to false hopes of what you're seeing. Because that time's going to come. It's going to come in God's day. It could come tonight. It may be 1,000 years from now. Our job is not to get ready for the rapture, but to get ready for the Lord. Whether he takes you before it or during it, then he's going to take you one way or the other. So be careful that we don't grab onto these signs and wonders. We're in Matthew chapter 24. <coughs> Notice what the Lord says in Matthew 24. We're at, remember, it's the same thing as Luke, except Luke adds in the times of the Gentiles. Picking up in verse 4, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. How many of those people have you and I experienced? I can think of five or six people who called themselves the returning Christ. Can you? Uh, I'm, I can't remember the. I can't even remember the guy's name now. What is it? Manson. Manson was one. Yeah, he was really a whack job. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about the guy that uh, had the Moonies. Some young moon the Unification Church. He called himself Christ. Is he still in jail or is he out? He died? Well, that's unfortunate. He went straight to hell, didn't he? Some young moon, the head of the Unification Church. I have a very quick story to tell you. Some of you have heard this, so don't give it away, please. When I was a pastor here, I was just new here for uh, maybe three or four or five years. I got a call and it was from a travel agency, and they said, you have been selected to go to a, a country to represent a Christianity in, in that country. I said, that's wonderful. Where? South Korea. I said, well, that's all right. I mean, I'd rather go other places, but South Korea would be all right with me. All expenses paid. Every nickel paid. I said, isn't that wonderful? That's great. I'm all in. What, what's, what's this about? I said, well, you're going to represent Christianity in a great meeting of Christians in South Korea. Really, who's putting this on? The Unification Church. Oh. I said, well, <clears throat> I need to tell you something before. I think some young moon is a liar. And the truth is not in him, the Bible says. He calls himself Christ, and actually that makes him an antichrist against Christ. So can I still go? Click. They hung up. <laughs> they hung up on me. They didn't want me going on their trip. I kind of wanted to go, you know, but they hung right up on me. Listen, there's been many people who claim themselves to be Christ's, and they're gone. This guy's gone as well. There will be many more that will claim themselves to be Christ, and there'll be even more in what we know to be the Great Tribulation period. So don't get caught up with that. Verse 6 of Matthew 24. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. 
Now, we're in the beginning of the tribulation when these things start, but the end is not yet. This is only really the beginning of the end. Notice in verse 7, For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. It's not the end of sorrows yet. It's the beginning of the great tribulation period. So when people start seeing wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, kingdoms rising against kingdom, this is going to be severe stuff. It's not what we know today to be uh, Iraq going against uh, Kuwait. That's not the wars he's talking about. He's talking about the wars of Daniel with a ten-nation federation. And out of that will come out the little horn. And from that little horn, he'll do, according to 2 Thessalonians, great signs and wonders, the Antichrist himself. This is all part of the great tribulation period. It's not part of what we see now. It has nothing to do with what we're doing now. It has everything to do with the promise to the nation of Israel. <coughs> we only have a couple of minutes. Turn with me, please, to the uh, book of the Revelation in chapter 6. And I want you to see the context here in Revelation chapter 6 of what you and I know to be the great judgments of God poured out. Three sets of judgments, the scroll judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. The scroll judgments happen when Jesus opens a scroll and he begins to read. And there's a seal there. Each judgment is a seal. He opens the seal and he reads the first judgment. He opens the seal reads the second judgment. And when we come upon these sealed judgments, I want you to see how they fit wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and pestilences in various places. We're in Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> and when I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder out of the four living creatures saying, Come. So John is observing this. The Lamb opens the seal. It'd be, if you opened the scroll and there was a seal, and then you had to break the seal, open it further. Break the seal, open it further. And what did he see? And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This, of course, is not Christ. This is the Antichrist, the false Christ who rides a white horse. Now, how do we know that? First of all, he's given a crown. The word there is Stephanus. It's not a diadem. It's a Stephanus. It's an earthly crown. He has an earthly crown, and I want you to notice he has a bow in his hand. Someone indicated there were no arrows. I really don't think that's really... I don't think you can read that into the text. As if to say he had a horse, but he didn't have uh, a saddle, or he had a horse, but he, you know... Uh, this person had a, a chariot, but there were no horses connected to it. When you read about a chariot, you assume there's horses. You read about a bow, and I assume there were arrows, but be that as it may. <coughs> and, I, and I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on had a bow and a crown, and it was given unto him, and he went forth to conquer, conquering rather, and to conquer. Remember, he's giving the ability to do that. Now, how does that happen? Under Antichrist, how does Antichrist go forth as parading himself as Messiah? Well, in the power of Satan, we read from the book of the Revelation. 
But I want you to notice, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, and by the way, that would be the wars and rumors of wars, would it not? Of course it would. He's going out, and the little horn of the book of Daniel begins to conquer nations and take over nations. Verse 3, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given unto him that sat on it to take, uh, to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So another, uh, another general goes out, another, another uh, being goes out, and he begins the process of, of wars on the earth throughout the whole earth. There's great battles going on. And what happens from wars? Well, uh, chapter 6 and verse 5. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and beheld, lo, a black horse, and he that sat on it had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A measure of wheat for denarii, and three measures of barley for denarius, and see thou hurt not the oil. So now the price of everything has just gone astronomical. A, a loaf of bread would cost you a week's pay just to get bread. In verse 7, and when I, he had opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name that sat on him was Death and Hades followed him. And power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So there's, there's, uh, there's going to be this horror that's going to come. And these are all just, the, according to the Lord Jesus, the beginning of sorrows. Just imagine what that's going to be like. Pestilence. <coughs> and God begins to throw earthquakes in there. Such earthquakes as the world has never seen. The stuff we read about, the stuff we hear about, the historians that come up with these earthquakes, they haven't even begun to write what's going to happen when God begins to shake the earth. And notice, death and Hades, a, a fourth part of the earth is killed instantly. Let's say there's 8 billion people. I know this a little less than it. Let's say there's 8 billion people. 2 billion people will die in a couple of months. 2 billion people will die in just a couple of months. It's, we can't even imagine that, can we? And what follows people? We couldn't bury that people that fast. You know, of course, Brian Bell, one of our missionaries, uh, when he was serving with his father in Africa, <coughs> he told me the AIDS epidemic was so bad at one point, they just bulldozed giant troughs and threw bodies in to get rid of them because of the disease that followed a dead body. They just they couldn't handle it. They couldn't keep up with it. And just imagine two billion people dying. It will be hard-pressed to get them in the ground even before disease starts to spread. And then, if that doesn't beat all, the beasts of the, uh, the world are going to attack. Why? Because they're out of food. They don't, they don't have any more food because of all the pestilence that's going on. My, my wife and I had a dog. His name was Gizmo. It was a German shepherd. I bought him because I was working second shift, and I knew he would protect our house, and he did protect our house. He was vicious. I locked him in a mudroom, and I would try to get home at night, and Gizmo wouldn't let me in the door. I'd open the door, and I'd be punching at him. Down, you dumb dog. I don't know why I ever got you. And, 
all that type of business. Well, Gizmo, my daughter had a bunny rabbit. And Gizmo played with the bunny rabbit. He used to play with them in the yard, and I thought, this is nice, Gizmo's playing with the bunny rabbit. Till one day, I found the bunny rabbit in the garage. Gizmo was hungry. Half a bunny rabbit in the garage. Dogs can turn. And dogs will turn. I'm afraid of the Simmons dog. Imagine. I'm glad I'm not going through the tribulation period with that ferocious dog they have there. <clears throat> but the whole world is going to be out of kilter. Is it out of kilter now? You say, well, things aren't great. Yeah, but this is talking about something beyond the scope of your thinking, beyond your, your, your imagination. And all this is the beginning of sorrow, the first half of the tribulation period. That's when Jesus said to the Jews there, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place, run! Run as fast as you can and as far as you can. Run for your life. But he also made this statement. When you shall see all these things, know that the end is near. What things? The tribulation things. This generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. What generation? It's not our generation. It's the generation that sees those things during the great tribulation period. Recognize, when he's talking about this parable, he's talking to the nation of Israel about their generation. Now, what about you and I? I have good news for you. We shall be saved from the wrath to come. What's the wrath to come? It's God's judgment upon the world focused on the nation of Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Don't let these things shake you. It has everything to do with Israel. It has nothing to do with you. But it was written for our learning, right? That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So I don't know what Pastor Rob has in mind for me. But next week, we'll look at something else. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, I'm so thankful for the parables, most of which have pointed to you and your work, most of which have pointed to your people, Israel, and what you have planned for them concerning your great kingdom. Lord, we know following the great tribulation period, Messiah will come back, and he will begin his millennial kingdom. Satan will be locked away for a thousand years. And when he's released, he'll seek to destroy the kingdom. He and those born in the kingdom that reject you. And fire shall come down from heaven and destroy them all. Then we'll begin the eternal state, the new Jerusalem, in which we will reign with you forever and ever in the eternal state. Father, the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And Father, though we go through times of illness and some more severe than others, though we go through times of hardship, some much more severe than others, and though we may go through some persecution, some much more than others, yet Lord, the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared. Thank you for this time together. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for his amazing grace, for his uh, caring for us, 
assuring us that we have a place with him eternally settled in the heavens. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.